We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Today, like many of you, we are at home trying to adjust to this strange reality. No longer am I rushing out the door and fighting traffic. Instead, I'm steps from my workspace. My daily cafe visits are replaced with homebrews. Every day, I check the rising numbers of cases and in the midst of it all, find solace in discovering new hobbies. Conversely, hospitals are brimming with patients as overwhelmed healthcare professionals are working with a weak infrastructure and scarce medical equipment. Our supermarkets are empty due to panic buying and left with people trying to meet their basic needs, all while financial uncertainty looms as businesses shut down, all because of a virus. As scientists, we are passionate about providing a 360 perspective on scientific topics. Now more than ever, people are realizing the global impact of a disease and its ability to transform communities. We will bring together anyone that has been affected, including scientists, patients, policymakers in our brand new series. As media reports stir panic amongst the public, the biotech companies are racing for vaccine development. In between these worlds are ordinary people like you and me wondering about the trajectory of COVID-19. Among the whirlwind is a lot of misinformation, such as, this will subside as the summer arrives, and drinking hot water every 15 minutes will flush out the virus. But what is this virus, and why is it such a public health concern? My name is Elizabeth Schneider. I'm 37 years old. I live in Seattle. I have a PhD in bioengineering, and I went into technical sales after graduating, and I've now been working in marketing for a biotech company. I fell sick on Tuesday, February 25th. I connected my illness to a party that I had attended three days prior. I woke up in the morning. I was feeling a little tired, a little bit groggy. I didn't think too much of it. I'd been out a lot, many nights in a row over the weekend and including the day before on that Monday. So I got dressed, I went to work as normal. Around midday, I started feeling unwell. I started feeling very tired. I had a headache. I felt like I had a fever. I went home early. I worked from home that day. And then in the early evening, I took a nap. Uh, when I woke up from the nap, my temperature was 101 degrees Fahrenheit. At that point, I definitely realized that I was sick with something. I didn't necessarily alarmingly think that it was the coronavirus. The symptoms seemed something like uh, the flu. I had um, body aches. I had a fever. I felt tired. Before I got ready to go to bed, my temperature was 103 degrees Fahrenheit. And so at that point, I did start to get a little bit alarmed because I couldn't remember the last time I had quite such a high fever. And I started shivering uncontrollably. And I really only had enough energy to quickly brush my teeth and go to bed. I did call a friend and ask if she could take me to the emergency room in the middle of the night in case I got worse. But I did take some over-the-counter medication. I took some Excedrin, and then I, I went to bed. The next morning, thankfully, my fever came down to 101 degrees. Again, I still had the same symptoms. I had body aches, fatigue, headache, fever. 
I was starting to get some congestion as well. Something similar to how you feel when you get a cold. I, again, didn't immediately think of the coronavirus, mainly because I didn't have a cough. I didn't have any respiratory symptoms. The tightness in my chest or shortness of breath that were being circulated as the hallmark of the COVID-19 disease. And we were all, of course, you know, kind of joking that maybe we had the coronavirus. My name is Kenny Lynn. I live about 60 miles south of Chicago. I work for a local school district in a preschool program and service about 600 students. Our school shut down last Tuesday. We should have been in school through last Wednesday, the 17th, and then it was starting parent-teacher conferences and spring breaks. Getting that information to parents on what we were doing, what we, you know, why we were shutting down, trying to keep them informed. We've been doing a lot of, we have a Facebook page. We've been hosting information from you know, the local health department. You don't want to overwhelm them, but yet you want to keep them kind of abreast of the situation because there's so much information out there. Today we are going to start our discussion with two physicians at the front line of this pandemic. Hi, my name is Benjamin Linus and I'm Josh Barokas. Dr. Barakas is an assistant professor of medicine at Boston Medical Center who specializes in infectious diseases, and Dr. Linus is an associate professor at the Boston University School of Medicine specializing in epidemiology. We have heard crazy things in the past few weeks, and I'm sure you have heard as well. There is a lot of misinformation out there, so I'm going to go through them one by one and say it's true or it's false. <laughs> Drinking water every 15 minutes will flush out the virus and keep you safe. False, but drinking water is a good thing. You should continue to drink water. Yeah, that's a false. (laughs) (laughs) The coronavirus is man-made in a lab and was developed as a biological weapon. That is false. Heat can kill the virus. President Donald Trump has previously suggested that heat killed the virus and it will be over by spring. Hollywood actor Tom Hanks weeks before announced he has the virus and he's in Australia where summer just ended. Heat kills the virus as in like autocleaving and like using high heat to sterilize laboratory equipment. With the Heat is what they use to kill the virus, but that's not the same thing as saying, oh, when the spring comes, it's going to kill off the virus. That's not true. So we do see seasonal variation in a lot of viruses. I think that that's where this misconception came from. We oftentimes see colds and influenza more in the winter than we see in the summer. But that's not about heat. That's about practically social distancing and the fact that people aren't sitting in the same room, oftentimes in the summertime, in close contact with people. So, no, it's, it's it's a false falsehood. The virus can be spread through mail coming from China. False. Oh, false. Everyone who gets the coronavirus will die. False. Definitely false, demonstrably untrue. There are people out there who can talk to you today who have the coronavirus. Ibuprofen makes people more susceptible to the virus. I'm going to call false. So here's the story on ibuprofen. There are 
There are rumors, discussion of data emerging that perhaps in France, people who were taking ibuprofen when they were infected with COVID virus had worse outcomes. In France, they considered those data strong enough that their national body recommended not using ibuprofen in COVID. Personally, I've yet to, it's not that I haven't seen good data or a randomized controlled trial, I've yet to literally see a number. I have only heard rumor, like literally rumor. I'm not ready to call that data at all. So if you have a bottle of Tylenol and you have a vial of Advil and you want to take one or the other, sure, take the Tylenol, like what's the harm? But don't go outside just to go buy Tylenol and don't don't lose sleep or be worried for your children if you have Advil in the house because there's no data to suggest that's true. Can you give us a little bit about the virology and the pathophysiology of COVID-19? COVID-19 is a coronavirus. Coronaviruses are single-stranded RNA viruses. They're very, very common, common cold. Often what's causing it is a coronavirus. COVID-19 is a novel coronavirus. We've seen coronavirus come out in sort of novel versions that are highly virulent before in the past. For example, the first SARS outbreak back in the early 2000s and MERS or coronaviruses. We've seen this happen before. Unfortunately, right now, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 is a particularly transmissible version of the coronavirus. And so it's right now having explosive growth and transmission around the world. Coronaviruses are, are so named um, for their crown-like shape. That is, when you look at the pictures of them, they have this crown-like aura to them, characterized by the spike protein. So that was Dr. Vineet Minacheri. He is an assistant professor in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at the University of Texas Medical Branch. So the spike protein is the most important protein for the virus in terms of its ability to replicate in a new cell. So the spike protein has two functions. One is to bind to a new host cell and then enter. And so those two functions have to work in concert for the virus to be able to infect a new cell. And so one part of the spike protein is involved in receptor binding. So it has to be able to recognize the receptor on a new host. And then once it recognizes that receptor, it has to be activated, usually by a protease on the host that will then activate a fusion mechanism. And so the spike protein is divided into two parts. And that spike protein is really the key to all of the entry and the driving of emergence. It's also what vaccines and therapeutics shoot for in terms of our long-term immunity. So with COVID-19, just like with the original SARS virus, it binds to the human receptor ACE2. Upon its binding, it can get activated by a number of host proteases. These can be either on the cell surface or after the virus has been internalized in the endosome can lead to activation. And so it's the same receptor for SARS-1 and SARS-2. And what makes this virus different from the other coronaviruses that increases the transmissibility? There's specific aspects within that RNA that make it more virulent or more likely not necessarily to transmit but also just hurt people a little bit more. It is unclear exactly what is distinct in terms of the virus. So the viruses, SARS-1 and SARS-2, are about 80% conserved at the nucleotide level. So they are, they are very similar by percentage, but because coronaviruses are such a large genome, 30,000 nucleotides, 20% difference is still a lot of nucleotide differences. The main difference that I see, or at least in terms of the clinical data, is that this SARS-2 replicates very well in the upper airway. Consistently, people who are infected have positive signals there. In contrast, when you look at SARS-1 or MERS coronavirus, 
neither of those have positive signals in their upper airways. Um, it's pretty rare to see infection in the upper airways in those models, which argues that the virus, those viruses don't replicate as well in the upper airway, which probably makes them less transmissible. Uh, this idea that if you're replicating virus in your nose and throat, it's more likely to spread than if it's just deep in your lung. If it's just deep in your lung, it's obviously more deadly. And this virus seems to have the capacity to do both. And we have seen the term flattening the curve. Can you briefly describe what this means? Flattening the curve is sort of a visual representation. We've all seen the line graphs that have been emerging of case counts over time, right? And we watch the number of diagnosed cases going up over time. At the beginning of the epidemic, we see that on an exponential path, right? So extremely rapid growth which is concerning, obviously, from a public health perspective, as we watch more and more cases coming into the hospital, we would like to get to a, a phase of the epidemic where we are no longer seeing that kind of explosive growth. You can imagine that if we see, if, we, if we're able to decrease transmission, that the shape of that curve is going to bend to the right and flatten and hopefully eventually start to go downward, right, and make a hill. So we're trying to flatten the curve so that it's no longer going straight up. And the other aspect of that is that it's not necessarily that we fully expect less cases in total. It's that we're, what we're trying to prevent is a surge in cases. So we expect that there's going to be some transmission. We expect that, that a lot of people are going to get it. But what we need is that number of people spread out over a longer period so that our healthcare system can appropriately accommodate and take care of all of the patients. Okay, great. And what are you and your fellow physicians doing to combat this on the front line? Many, many things. <laughs> We're all incredibly busy right now, uh, working hard both in the hospital and in the community to try to address this spread. And as Josh was saying, slow the rate of transmission so that we're ready and can handle what's coming our way. Uh, the hospital is busy putting up protocols for treatment and testing and isolating patients and understanding when patients can go home. In the community, we're thinking about when patients are at home, if they're sick, when can they come out of their home? Uh, we're thinking about trying to expand testing, which really on every front, you have infectious disease doctors and infectious disease epidemiologists who are burning the candle at both ends, working really hard to try to, to, try to prevent surge. And then um, in addition to what Ben said, there's, there's the actual treatment and testing and protective uh, equipment protocols that we're putting together. And then the other part of this is outreach and public health campaigns. We, we can't do this all on our own. Uh, what we need is for our government officials and our communities to understand what their role is in limiting transmission. So the other part of what we're doing these days is helping educate the public, getting edu patient education out there, helping people understand not just how to keep themselves safe, but how to keep other people safe, helping our governments understand the scope of and the potential magnitude of the epidemic and what they can do to limit the potential spread. The other thing that we're trying to do, I think in many sectors right now, is beyond education, beyond sort of the medical part of all of this, it's actually trying to come up with protocols and procedures and 
responses that truly keep people safe. So we've been working a lot with our vulnerable populations, people who use drugs, people with immunocompromised systems, people who are experiencing homelessness, so that what we can do is find space and find staff and find resources to make sure that all of these people either get met the medical care that they need or get prevention so that they don't need the medical care. Can you comment on the reliability, the method availability, as well as the sensitivity of tests currently used for detecting the COVID-19? The test for COVID is, it's a PCR RNA test, right? So it's a nucleic acid amplification test. That is a technology and platform that we know that we use all the time and that is well established. And there are tests out there for COVID-19 now. There has been a very slow rollout of testing. I will say in a clinical setting, it's now getting better. It's still not where I think it needs to be, but it is getting better. But that's just the tippy, tippy tip of the iceberg. I, I think that if we're thinking in the slightly longer term, which I think we should be doing now, I don't see a way out that doesn't involve very widespread testing in the community with rapid response to contain cases, track down the contacts and test them too, in a way that we've never seen before, not yet, and certainly not with COVID. There's some people saying, like, why is everyone talking so much about testing? Testing isn't that important right now. We're really worried about the clinical cases and the test is, is, is not that important to them. I understand that viewpoint. I would argue in a hospital, actually knowing if the person actually does have COVID or not is critically important to their care and to hospital isolation. But also I think that's a, it's a dangerously short, like myopic view of what's happening here. Because even if today, literally March 24th, my highest priority in the hospital is not testing, if we don't have testing and like orders of magnitude more of it, like I, I don't see where we're headed with this other than to stay inside. <laughs> To, to make a little bit less doomy gloomy, I actually think Ben's really right in all of this. What I'll say, though, so there's two two aspects of that we're really having a hard time with. The first is availability of tests. And that's really, at this point, it's the rate-limiting step in testing. So we have the technology. We know that it works. We know that it exists. We're scraping around for tests right now. The second aspect of this that is getting at that sensitivity question is this is an evolving issue we don't know when the right time to test is at what time during their the disease course you have the highest viral load if it's really the most reliable to do a nasal pharyngeal swab or an oropharyngeal swab and thank goodness that we have excellent scientists in china and in south korea and in italy that unfortunately are having to tell us what their experience has been and but what they're helping us understand is when we should be testing so and, and what we can expect from the test so really there's these there's these two aspects that we really do need to focus on testing because at some point we have to really understand what the community viral load is but at right. the same time it's not for lack of trying it's that we've just yeah literally don't have the tests. We've had a lot of clinical conversations this week of patients who like, for all the world, we would swear they have COVID based on their clinical presentation, their CAT scans, all of the data we're assessing. 
and then the test comes back negative. And what do you do with that is a hard decision because it involves, can, you know, should we test again? Can this person come off isolation protocol? It has implications for limited supplies of personal protective equipment and limited supply of isolation rooms. So right, this question around test characteristics and how to interpret this test is a really important one right now. So what, what is the current uh, situations right now in the clinics? Dr. Linus and Dr. Borokis, like if you have a patient with all the symptoms or some of the symptoms of the COVID-19 admitted, what is the protocol right now? So given the, the dearth of testing available, literally test kits available, what what's actually happening in the community is that somebody calls their doctor says i have cough it's got a little bit of shortness of breath and that primary care or family practice physician or gastroenterologist says well it sounds like your your symptoms are pretty bad um you should head over to get a test most places in the community don't have those tests so it's coming to the hospital or coming to a testing location. If you're deemed at one of those testing locations to be really sick, sick, then you get admitted to the hospital uh, while we, so we can treat you symptomatically, we can give you supportive care, and we can rule you out for COVID-19. If, however, you're not sick, sick, uh, sick enough to be hospitalized, there's two routes that we can go. And this really has to do with uh, the, the lack of resources. One is you seem to have very mild, mild symptoms and um, you're a generally healthy person and you have a safe place where you can be isolated to go. Then sometimes the person doesn't get the test because it's not necessarily going to show anything new or novel and it's not going to change treatment. It's not going to change the course of how that person is treated. So oftentimes, for instance, myself, I'm a generally healthy, handsome, funny <laughs> person. No um, um, if, I, if I started having symptoms, I would talk to somebody at the hospital and they'd say, you know, it sounds like you might have, might have COVID. You're not going to, we're not going to test you though, because you can just go isolate in your basement away from your your kids and your your spouse. The other part of is if we really need to know if somebody is COVID positive and they're going back into the community because it's going to change their living situation, it's going to change uh, how they conduct business, uh, who they can be around in their household, then they will get a test. And oftentimes what happens is, you know, we, we ask that they check back in later on um, either COVID positive or negative to see how their symptoms have progressed and, and then they can come back to the hospital. Within the hospital, it's a different situation because you've already been admitted. You're what's considered a suspected case. And so we give you supportive care and we, we watch it while you're there. You mentioned kind of how the tests that you've conducted sometimes comes out to be negative, but all the symptoms and all the imaging really supports that it should be COVID-19. So what are the rates of false positive and false negative in these tests? So that's a fabulous question. I don't think that anyone can give you a firm answer today. There's some data that have come from China that I've seen that are published in, the, in JAMA that looked at, I want to say it was 13 or maybe 20 patients 
the patients had multiple different types of specimens drawn. So it, it was all done in clinical care, right? It wasn't routinely assessed. So they grabbed whatever was taken in a clinical setting. So some had um, oropharyngeal swabs or nasopharyngeal swabs or sputum or bronchial lavage. They even had urine and stool and blood in that study. Uh, and they sort of looked and said, okay, in these patients, all of whom had at least one test from somewhere positive at some time, what percentage of the specimens, right, of these various specimens were positive. They didn't look at that over time. They just looked by patient, right? So all of patient number seven's tests were just stacked together without thinking about when they were drawn. And there they showed that the typical nasopharyngeal swab that we do when we do the quote COVID test, right? We stick the swab up your nose, like a flu test kind of, and then, and then send it. That looked like it was positive about 70-ish percent of the time. I think, you know, that's not a final answer because it's preliminary. And also there's a big difference between like taken two days after you have symptoms and taken nine days after you have symptoms. So that's the kind of detail that's important and that we're trying to figure out now. But I don't have the answer yet. Can you explain the gender difference? Like what, what could be the cause of the gender difference in the COVID infections? One possibility is that there are genetic differences between males and females, and there's something about the virus and males that has sort of a virologically or immunologically plausible reason that it might be potentially more serious in males. We don't know that. I mean, these are all theories, right? Another one is that is a confounded relationship between smoking and COVID, and that actually smoking is more prevalent in males than females. It's possible, or maybe it's something else. I don't think we know yet. Next, we hear a little bit from a physician in Rome, Italy, Dr. Valentina Longo. So we are hoping that speaking to her will give us a little bit more perspective regarding what's happening outside of the United States and how Italy is currently managing their situation. As a doctor uh, working in an international context, what is worrying me the most is what might happen now that even the cases are rising in other areas of the world, particularly in unprivileged communities and, and countries like in Africa. So I'm in contact with colleagues, doctors, epidemiologists uh, that are there, and um, everyone is very worried. We are trying to write some journal article about some of the conditions that uh, might happen there. What, what is worrying me the most is that most of the measures that have been put in place here, particularly in this social isolation, are, are not applicable in other contexts. What would be the response if any? I mean, if the epidemic will reach those countries, we're trying to talk with them, we're trying to share as much as we can, because you cannot advise people to stay home if they don't have a home or if there are 15 people living together or uh, you cannot tell them not to go for work. They will not be able to cope without working. I think we should start thinking about that as well because I believe the problem will, will happen soon and I think we should, we should start wondering what we'll do. So we know there's definitely a dearth of PPE around the country and around the world right now. So can you guys discuss the weaknesses in the medical infrastructure that could lead to such a dire circumstance. I don't want I don't want any I, anyone to think that it's the medical infrastructure. There there are a lot of parts of this process, and I'm not a supply chains person, and I'm not a global economist. But there are a lot of parts. Uh, the first and foremost is that 
regardless of how well a government plans for a pandemic, there is still a part of each one of us, regardless of your politics, uh, that, that thinks it could never happen. We do live in a world of limited resources, and Ben and I are both probabilities person. <laughs> I'll say even honestly, you know, of course, we all think that maybe it could happen, but, you know, maybe I could have won a gold medal in the Olympics had I continued to be a, a swimmer in high school, right? It's it's always possible. And so I think that as you're, as any government is trying to balance what their priorities are, it's hard to, to predict. Now, that said, I think that there have been a number of things that have chain reactioned into where we are now. I do think that we continue to need, and probably going forward, we'll need a pandemic response team at the federal and state levels. That was something that was in place and was taken away by the current administration and was something that we definitely need at this point, mostly because having a command center set up on day one is important. The second issue is that we live, again, we live in a, a world of finite resources. And so if, for instance, one country is experiencing a pandemic, then things like personal protective equipment are going to, especially if it's manufactured in that country, are likely going to stay there because until we can start to retrofit manufacturing and, and the like. And so as this chain reaction of a pandemic happened, and China was hit first, and then various countries in, in Asia and across Europe were hit, the, the global supply chain effectively got too stressed and is more or less dried up. And hospitals in the United States are doing what they can, but we could have had better foresight into uh, how to plan for needing stockpiles and needing larger stockpiles of PPE. Ben, do you... Do you yeah, no, I, I agree. I can't. It's somewhat, and I put testing into the same category. I can't understand. Yeah. I can't understand how the supply chain can be so damaged. I agree that some of it has to do with where things are produced. And if it's all produced out of country, why would you expect it to be shipped in in the middle of a crisis? I mean, there were absolutely policy decisions that, that have had impact here. Josh mentioned them. The decision to dismantle the epidemic task force clearly is directly related. A decision not to have a strategic reserve of these, right? N95 respirators cost $3. We could have a billion N95 respirators in a strategic reserve for $3 billion on the federal budget, which we probably could have spent bit by bit over the course of a decade. So it really would have looked like a rounding error on our balance sheet at the federal budget to have a strategic reserve of N95 respirators and ventilators and protective gowns and everything else that we need now, but we're not doing that. And I think when we write the book on this, to me at least, it's becoming clear that we really need to pull some manufacturing of essential goods like this back into a domestic framework. I agree. And if that's more expensive, because we're going to pay our laborers a real wage and we're going to have workplace protections and all the things that do make labor costs more expensive in the United States than they are, you know, overseas. We need to do that, <laughs> at least for some essential things for this reason. So, but I don't understand the nitty gritty of how the supply chain has collapsed like this. The other thing that we've talked about, Ben and I dabble in, in economics. 
him a little bit better than me. But one of the things that we that's big right now is, well, what's this doing to the economy? Mm-hmm. And is this is are these quote draconian measures of shelters in place or stay in place orders or advisories? Are these really what's the trade off? And one of the things that I've thought about, and I'm curious, Ben has similar, dissimilar thoughts, but it is hurting the economy now. That is, there is no question about that. The markets are struggling. Small businesses are struggling. I think, though, that without these measures in place, whether they're the very hard line shelter in place advisories or orders to like, we just need you to social distance, the whole spectrum of that. If we don't have those, then I think that the long-term economic insecurity and volatility is going to be a lot worse than what it is right now. Do you uh, disagree? No, I completely agree. And I think that the economy, I mean, I find the economic news as anxiety provoking as the epidemic news. I mean, there's some pretty scary numbers that are out there about things like 20% unemployment and it's, that's scary. Um, at the same time, I think that if we press hard now and try to you know, flatten the curve and do the things that we've been discussing, it's easy to imagine that this is a painful but quick hit on the economy that I think the economy could endure. And we have fiscal mechanisms and monetary mechanisms to try to stimulate as we're, as we're discussing now at the federal level. What's much, much, much more damaging is a prolonged, long-term drag down depression on the economy, right? We've seen that. Those can last a decade. Uh, So, right, I I actually think we're much better off taking it on the chin right now and trying to do this than dragging it out. And you know what? I mean, I'm sorry, but I'm I'm a doctor for a reason. And, you know, we talk a lot about economics. We talk about a lot of value in health those sorts of things at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm a physician for, for a reason. And it's because I believe that I want to help provide health and happiness to, to people. And, and yes, economics has a lot to do with health and happiness. I'm not trying to minimize that, but at the end of the day, you can't rebuild an economy if, if you've got, a lot of people who have died. Mm-hmm. If your workforce is is dead, th- then you can't rebuild that economy. And I personally, I feel like these short term, you know, painful distancing measures, and as painful as it is as it is on the economy, it's good for our citizens. It's good for my family and other families in the long term, especially if we can come up with policies like we're already seeing that protect people in the future. We're, we're looking at many policies have been enacted that are really policies of justice that are enacted now to to protect people in the event that they are having economic hardship. And, and I think that as long as we continue to do that, then then we're headed at least at some point in the right direction. And today we have Dr. Scott Commoners, who is an assistant professor at Harvard Business School. He'll be talking to us about how the pandemic has impacted the market. I'm Scott Commoners. I study the design of markets and marketplaces. As far as essential goods, you know, my, my 
Bloomberg colleague um, Noah Smith actually had a really good suggestion. What you really need is, is an information technology, some way of seeing where these goods are available, combined with you know, sort of store level or local restrictions on purchasing. So, you know, why are people hoarding hand sanitizer? It's because they know they might need it in the future and they know it might be very hard to get. And that sort of exacerbates the hoarding effect, mm -hmm. right? Because if you know you might need this and, and you won't be able to get it, you're going to go and get it now, which makes it harder for other people to get it. And, and, and this reinforces the, uh, the need to hoard. Whereas if instead you could see sort of like, you know, here's what the hand sanitizer supply chain looks like. Here's which of my local stores carry it and, and, and what their stocks are when, then you know you have a way to get it when you need. And that sort of reduces the need for people to hoard and relaxes some of these supply constraints a bit. Now, not entirely, right? It's, it's currently just still in undersupply. And there, there's a role for government to step in and really sort of compel different manufacturers to produce more. And we're, we're starting to see that all around the world with governments helping find manufacturers that are not generally in the you know in the business of producing disinfectants and similar and getting them what they need to repurpose their factories to produce disinfectant which will you know have the other lovely feature of producing some like you know brewery and, and fashion designer you know branded disinfectant which is kind of cool so the government has a real role in coordinating delivery of services right they can work with companies and and figure out how to expand supply and the government can can pay for that expanded supply as well right you know, you think about undersupply of like expensive, over-demanded medical technology like ventilators, the government should just be buying those things. They should be commissioning manufacturers to make as many of them as they can. Incidentally, in, in times when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, they should be building a strategic reserve, right? We shouldn't be running out of these things. The government should be sort of constantly trying to make sure that we have a stock, you know, for a really bad state of the world like we're in right now. But then the other things, you know, sort of other roles of government at the moment you know, we have this huge economic cost of keeping everybody inside. And there are many people, you know, again, talking about sort of low versus high income communities, this is another big divide, right? Lots of high income individuals, first of all, have the savings to, you know, hole up at home. They also have better homes, right? You know, sort of like more space to live in. And they also tend to have jobs that are more easily portable. Right. If you're a software engineer, maybe you were working from home some anyway. Now you're relocated to home and you're spending more time on Zoom or some, you know, some other conferencing software, but it doesn't make your job fundamentally impossible to do. Whereas if you were like maintenance or operations staff in the building that that software engineer worked in, mm -hmm. maybe now you have lost your job. Yeah. And so the government has a lot of work to do to prop up, you know, the welfare of people who are, who are hourly workers or otherwise sort of displaced by the crisis and have no safety net or backup to call on. Indeed, you know, for multiple reasons. One of them is it's the right thing to do. Another is those are the individuals who will spend that money consuming right now. When we're thinking about like keeping businesses afloat, you want to be transferring to the extent that you can to people who will spend. And additionally, it helps them not have to go outside, right? Like if we're trying to keep everyone as distant and protected as possible, a big externality if people decide they have to go out and work. You also dampen that incentive. Similarly, the government should be like doing a lot to subsidize small businesses. If those collapse, right, if we, we make it to the end of however long we're spent in social distance, we make it to the end of that and all of these businesses have gone bankrupt, right? There's, there isn't a way to just sort of suddenly switch them back on. And so the government should be providing loans. Many governments, again, are doing this, providing like sort of zero interest, medium term loans to support these small businesses and sort of keep them in business over the time period. So 
Ben and Josh, what are the current models anticipating in terms of the spread of the COVID? Uh, bad. Um, but you have to be careful, right? Because yeah, no. the, models, the models that I've seen where people like to put it in the newspaper are the scenarios of if we do nothing. Yeah, and no, I was, that's, what I was, that's what I was referencing is that the models are bad. I'm with you, Ben. So I, I think that some of the models that, that we've seen uh, in some of the academic literature, at least, show that some of these dramatic, what seem like dramatic moves by, uh, by businesses and by governments of shutting things down, um, which are painful, I understand. But what we see in some of these models is that these drastic, what, what we feel like are drastic changes can actually dramatically change the course of the epidemic. And those models that Ben and I were just joking about, when you say you do nothing and you're hanging out in Central Park um, playing touch football and sharing Slurpees, those are potentially bad scenarios. Um, I, I don't want to underplay what is potentially what what is what's possible here that said these these policies do have an impact even if people don't understand and see how me not walking down the block to you know my local coffee shop is actually protecting anyone it does and that's what these models show Next, we talk to Dr. James Collins. He's a professor of medical engineering and science and professor of biological engineering at MIT. James is one of the founders of the emerging field of synthetic biology and has made multiple breakthroughs in biotechnology and biomedicine, including diagnostics for Zika and Ebola and living diagnostics and therapeutics to detect and treat infections. Dr. Collins also made fundamental discoveries regarding the actions of antibiotics and the emergence of antibiotic resistance. So I'm a bioengineering professor at MIT, as well as at the Beast Institute at Harvard and the Broad Institute here in the Boston area. I know that there is effort from a synthetic biology standpoint to use nucleic acid technology, DNA and RNA, mm -hmm. to design relatively rapidly vaccines against a given pathogen. My concern is that we nonetheless have to ensure that we don't move too quickly without the appropriate preclinical work mm. to advance entities into clinic that would then absorb resources. And had we just taken a bit more time, we would have increased the, the possibility of success of a given vaccine on the back end of the clinical trials. We're working very hard to uh, develop and advance vaccines. I know one or two are already in trials. Uh, I am hopeful that we will soon have a vaccine that will be safe and effective. Uh, and we've got long history of developing such vaccines and uh, with the world uh, engaged to address this, we have some of the greatest minds uh, advancing that. During this pandemic, a focus of attention and resources on medicine and biomedical sciences tells less than half the story of how societies really identify new diseases, how they respond and what the consequences might be. We had the opportunity to talk to Dr. 
Sabrina Gaffasidiri. She's a sociology professor in Canada and she's telling us a little bit about pandemics and emerging infectious diseases from a sociology perspective. Your background in sociology, we'd love to hear a little bit more about uh, what are the contributing factors of a pandemic that can break down a society? So I think looking at this from a sociological perspective changes things a little bit because we're not now just looking at this as a disease or looking at it from a medical standpoint. We're now looking at the effects that, you know, a medical illness, um, you know, for a large population of people would have on a society or the structure of society as we know it. And of course, that changes for Western countries versus other societies. But if we just analyze the West and Western countries and the structure of Western societies, then we can see how you know, a pandemic and the fear that comes with it and the way that human beings are now, you know, told to stay at home and like different institutions within society are, are you know, not working the way that they that they were working would affect how the structure functions. Actually, there's a interesting way of explaining society that I often use in my classes, and that is like from a functionalist perspective, and I won't go into too much detail about what functionalism is, but it's a type of, it's a sociological perspective, but the way that it describes how societies work is, you know, we've got all these different institutions like education and criminal justice system, the healthcare system, and we've got all these systems and they're kind of like organs in a body and the body is the full society and then the different organs in there represent the different institutions and the idea with functionalism is that in order for society to function and have stability and equilibrium all the organs have to be functioning well and if even one of them you know has dysfunction then the entire body collapses, the whole of society breaks down and a person dies or society as we know it disintegrates. And that's where I think sociology plays a part in a pandemic having an effect on the way society functions. Because if one element or institution in society stops working, it affects all the others. Even just the idea of schools shutting down You know, people think of schools as having just one function, which is provide education, but they actually have uh, latent functions. They serve as daycares. They serve as places where children get food often, right? So when that place shuts down, it affects the employment of other individuals. So that's just kind of like a overview of how one pandemic can affect other parts of society. Another reason, and, and this hasn't been spoken about a lot, but because I do a lot of work, culture and, and socialization and all of that, I wonder how much the spread has to do with culture in various countries. So like where you see cultures where there's a lot of physical contact, handshaking and people touching each other more and being more in close contact with each other, the spread would be more prevalent. And in cultures where there is not as much contact, physical contact, there will be less spread. And these are all things that now you're going to see. Right now we're in the eye of the storm. People are just trying to survive and do do everything right. But give this another year, you're going to get social scientists looking at the reason why 
the numbers were higher in one place versus another place? You know, what were the factors that contributed to higher rates in one country versus another? And my suspicion is, or, you know, my prediction is, is that we're going to start looking at culture and the social makeup of the societies and Western versus Eastern cultures. And those are going to be our way of understanding this pandemic. And I would say, like, I've become... I'm, I'm trying, I think I am optimistic that we can bend this immediate curve and prevent the in-hospital apocalypse that everyone is scared of. And I think what's making me optimistic is, I mean, it's experiential in some sense. It's not data-driven yet, mm-hmm. but you look around, first of all, just in my personal experience being outside right now in Boston, it's different. Like, it is slower. And then I see these pictures of empty Times Square an empty Grand Central Station and right and empty plazas or empty squares in Paris. And like probabilistically, that's just, you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of, of, of potential transmission events that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, exp- like the exponential piece has to be working in our favor on this sense, right? The same way that it's scary that disease transmits exponentially. If you break all those transmission connections, you're getting exponential like benefit down the road to no more transmission. Mm-hmm. So I'm hopeful that that has to do something. Mm -hmm. I think that the longer term challenge is a lot of transmission goes on, not in Grand Central Station and not in Times Square. It's in it's in closer contacts like households and small groups and and workplace settings. And we're not preventing that necessarily with with emptying out Times Square. And that's where testing starts to come in. And I, I think that's the next phase of our discussion. With how, what are we going to do with, 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 with asymptomatic transmission in small groups like families? How can we use the data we're collecting now and we'll continue to collect to help shape the future of policy to prepare for the next pandemic? The conversation sometimes comes up of, well, what are we going to learn for this? Hopefully, I hope we have a COVID vaccine sometime in a sometime immediately, certainly in the next year or two, is this really a one-year question? But no, it's not because COVID, we've seen this before. We see things like upper respiratory viruses, like other coronaviruses that become near pandemic or threaten to become epidemic once every 10 years or so. If you look back at MERS and SARS and the H1N1 flu, like this happens. And so this is the first time in our lifetimes that we've seen it happen at a global scale. It's the first time in the history of humanity that we've seen it happen with the sort of level of science and communications technology that we have available to us now. And so it's incredibly inspiring to me to watch the level of science that's been going on, the speed at which it's happening, the incredible methods that people are using, and then everything is instantly online via journals that have taken down their paywalls, informal routes of communication, even Twitter is a place to start finding raw data these days, is really been quite remarkable. And I have had times looking at that where I'm like, man, they would have really liked to have even a fraction of this in 1918. Yeah. Like we're a much better shape than they were. Um, <laughs> as, as scary as it is right now, and as much as we are playing catch up, and at times I'm wondering what have we been doing for the last 10 years, we're still in way better condition than we would have been if this was 1918. All the genetic sequences of the virus of the virus are just available online for everyone who knows what to do with that data to use. Um, so, you know, we're learning things about how to collaborate globally, how to orchestrate a response. And, and frankly, we haven't yet, but I think what we're going to learn about now is how to surge production of things like diagnostic technologies and vaccine production. 
and we're going to learn how to respond the next time we see this so that we don't end up in this spot so that the next time we can do what we should have done in America, say, in late January, early February to prevent where we are now. And we're going to learn the value of being able to sort of retrofit manufacturing, whether it's for PPE or for other things. I mean, and I get it. We have an import export economy and that makes a lot of sense. But this is driving rapid innovation in how to retrofit machinery and and help so that even if even if, you know, company A goes back to manufacturing buttons later on, they at least know how to retrofit their machinery to help manufacture X, Y or Z. One thing that's been driving me sort of making me frustrated is amongst colleagues who are conservatives, you know, I, I, I want to point out to them that, that even in really conservative circles of economics and like libertarian thinking, everyone acknowledges that there is a role for a central government and that that role for a central government is for, in their mind, very limited things. But those limited things are things like wars because we don't fight wars neighborhood by neighborhood, right? We're a country and we have one army. And then the other like classic example is like an epidemic. So yeah, right. So like, this is what our government is for. Of course, we can't ask factories to hold back production for a decade because they're reserving capacity for this maybe right for this maybe pandemic 10 years from now. They're not going to do that. And it's not really in our system of mm -hmm. capitalism. The government does that, right? Because the government can afford to hang back and have extra capacity just sitting around for a decade so that when we need it, we have it. The government can make a strategic reserve. That shouldn't be on corporations. That's not their job. That's the government's job. I, I hope we see that and learn this lesson now. You know, the only thing that I've been saying to colleagues and family and friends and sometimes Ben is that, <laughs> you know, this is, this is incredibly anxiety provoking. For everyone. Yep. And there are a couple glimmers of hope that I see, and Ben touched on it earlier, and I think that it's worth reiterating. And that is that amidst all of this chaos and all of this uncertainty and, and anxiety and fear, I've never in my short life have I experienced the type of humanity and the type of collaboration that I see now. And by that, I mean people come out of the woodwork to volunteer their time and whether it's like baking goods or volunteering to do a webinar for a family so that they know how to cook something or bringing homeless people food, whatever it happens to be. I don't know why I just focus so much on food. The humanity that is coming out of this has made a lot of it much more palatable for me. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree. And also I've been thinking about this from time to time. And the thing I try to remind myself is, honestly, I can't think, I don't think it's ever happened, uh, really. Like, has there ever been a time when everyone in the world, effectively, has been working together on a project to keep ourselves safe? Like in 1918, there were certainly efforts to close schools and do social distancing in cities all over the place, but not in the coordinated way that we're all talking to each other and doing it together now. It's like, it's really sort of almost out of a sci-fi movie, like when the aliens attack and the whole world comes together. I'm not naive enough to think it's that utopian, but, you know, that is the sort of 
effort that we're engaged in. And I don't think humans have ever done that before. And that, you know, it gives me chills if I think of it that way, that we're engaged in this global project to keep each other safe. I mean, it's, it's powerful. Thank you, Josh and Ben, for joining us today. And thanks to all the other guests for their insights. We hope that this episode gives a 360 perspective of this pandemic and really introduce you to not only the clinical impact, but also from the lens of sociology and economics. This episode was the result of incredible teamwork during this hectic time by our wonderful team members, including our writers, Madura Lilikar, Dr. Shuangzeng, Bria Taylor, and our marketing director, Dr. Carla Diavanzo, our editors, Tavi Pollard and Sophia Nastri, our assistant, Rebecca Solison, and of course, our creative director, Emma Brand. We would also like to thank all our guests in the episode for dedicating the limited time that they may have to our show and to our listeners. Thank you again for listening to another episode of Science Rehashed.